Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation. Welcome to the mission Healing of Breathing Heart with your host, the mother-daughter team of Dr. Gloria Horsley and Dr. Heidi Horsley. Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi have devoted their lives to helping individuals move forward after a profound loss and each week share stories of hope and understanding. They dedicate their show to their son and brother Scott and to others who have lost loved ones. Now join Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi and share the journey from grief and loss to hope and renewal. Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Each week, Heidi and I welcome you to Healing the Grieving Heart, a show of hope and conversation with those who suffered the loss of a loved one and for healthcare professionals who work in this most difficult field. As always, the message has been, others have been there before you and made it. You can too. You need not walk alone. If you're listening to our Thursday live Internet show, please join Heidi and me on the show by calling our toll-free number, 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. With questions or comments regarding the losses in your life, these shows are archived on our blog, thegriefblog.com, as well as the Compassionate Friends website. These shows are brought to you by the Open to Help Foundation. All shows can be downloaded on iTunes and transcripts are accessible on the Grief Blog. So if you've got friends who you like the show and you've got friends who don't use the Internet, you can actually download those transcripts for them and give them a handout of the transcript. Well, Heidi, the Open to Hope Foundation is going along really well now. We've had yeah, it up it is. since a few days. Yeah. And uh, what we're doing now with the foundation is we are looking for people who'd like to be contributing authors to our foundation site. So if you're a person who is a writer and is interested in writing on hope and dealing with loss and, and hope after loss, you might want to go on thegriefblog.com. And there uh, you can, uh, there's a place where you can make comments and you could ask for information on being a contributing author to the Open to Hope Foundation. Well, Heidi, our poetry contest is over, and we announced our winners last week, and uh, Heidi is going to, uh, Kim, we're going to say Hodney. We're not sure, Kim, if we've fluttered your name. We're sorry. But uh, Kim Hodney, um, we gave uh, the people who were in the contest, we had uh, first, second, and third place, and we gave them the option of reading their poem on the air or having a friend read it or uh, Kim Hodney read uh, emailed us back and said she would very much like to read, Heidi to read her poem. And after Heidi reads the poem, we're going to introduce our guest. And I, I'm going to give a quick beginning introduction. We are very honored to have uh, Candy Leitner on the show, who was the founder of MAD, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So, Heidi, do you want to go ahead and read our poem? Uh, yes, I'd be honored to. Um, Kim's poem is in memory of her son, Trevor, and... His birthday was April 5th, and that's why she wrote it. Um, He was born in 1979. He would have been 29 years old this year. And he died, unfortunately, on February 1st, 04, and he was 25 years old at the time of his death. And this is an honor and a tribute to him. And the poem is called, I've Stopped Looking for Him. I've stopped looking for him everywhere. I'm not sure when that happened. I don't search for him in crowds or his car on the road. I've stopped looking for him, biking on the paths, swimming in the ocean, skiing down the hills. 
I've stopped watching for him to pull up the driveway and run in with a hug and raid the fridge. I'm not sure when this happened. A sudden turning point? No, rather a very slow realization that he is not coming back. I've stopped waiting for him to pick up the phone and hear his sweet voice recounting his week. A movie plays in my head of the baby, little boy, teen, and young man, and it's enough. That I don't need to search for him around every corner. He reaches me in other ways, always a pleasant surprise. In memory of Trevor. Thank you, Kim. That was so beautiful. Yes, thank you so much, Kim, and and all of you out there who um, have poetry in your hearts. uh, Keep writing your poetry, and we will be uh, doing another contest. And um, Kim's poem, you can also read it on on the Internet, and if you'd like us to send you a copy, um, go to the grief blog and and enter that in uh, questions or comments there. Well, Heidi, again, we have a wonderful guest today, um, and we are doing something a little different today. I have my computer on, and if you have questions or comments, we got some emails um, for uh, Candace Leitner that we'll be dealing with on the show, but also during the show now, we've decided that we're going to, I'm going to leave my computer on, and if you have emails that you would like to send in to us during the course of the show, please do that, and I'll be watching for them. Okay, Heidi, would you like to go ahead and introduce our guest? Yes, I'd love to. Our guest today is Candace Leitner, and our topic is founding mothers against drunk driving. In 1980, Candace Leitner's 13-year-old daughter, Carrie, was killed by a drunken hit-and-run driver. The leniency of his sentence outraged Ms. Leitner, who then organized Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD. The object of her organization was to raise public awareness of the serious nature of drunken driving and to promote tough legislation against the crime. The President of the United States bestowed upon her the President's Volunteer Action Award, and she was the subject of the movie, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, The Candy Leitner Story. Welcome to the show, Candace. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's uh, wonderful to have you on the show. As I said, we're very honored to have you on because uh, you have done so much to to make some changes in our world that are very positive and moving and, and give hope to our other folks out there. Well, I think we'd like to start the show a little bit about having you tell us about your story, how you, I guess you were in uh, Southern California? No, actually, I lived in Sacramento. Oh, you lived in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Fair Oaks, a suburb of Sacramento. Uh-huh. And Carrie and her friend Carla were on their way to um, a Catholic school carnival that was right down the street from us, and she was walking. They were both walking inside the bike lane. They were hit from behind. She was actually hit, though, and... She was thrown 125 feet, left in the mm-hmm. road to die. It was a hit and run, and he mm-hmm. kept going. Wow. And then they found him because his wife actually turned him in. She was a very Christian woman, and he had been released from bail several hours earlier before killing my daughter from another hit and run drunk driving crash. And he, in that case, I think he had totaled the car, so he was using her car. And when he came home, he told her not to look at the car, which, of course, she did. And she noticed um, that it had obviously been in another wreck. And so when she heard a 13-year-old child had been killed by a hit-and-run driver, because they didn't know about his drinking at the time, she called the California Highway Patrol, and they came out and took the car. That's unbelievable. So he was actually using her car because he had hit somebody else two days prior to this. Mm-hmm. Correct. 
Right. That Although she wasn't, the woman that he hit before wasn't injured, um, but the car was wrecked apparently, so that's why he wanted to use his wife's car. What I'm wondering is why was he still driving, given that he had injured someone two days, I mean, hit someone two days previously? Nothing because, had been done? Yeah, <laughs> because unfortunately, that's the way the laws worked at the time. Mm-hmm. They were just um, not enforced. Drunk driving wasn't taken seriously. It wasn't treated as a crime. And that was one of the things that I set about to change, which I did. That's and incredible. That was in 1980. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really wasn't in the 20s or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Times have changed since then. But um, believe it or not, that's, you know, kind of standard. And, in fact, he was driving on a valid California driver's license, even though I think, if I can remember, it's been so long ago, he had three priors. Carrie was his fifth. Oh, my God. So I believe, if I remember correctly. And so he still had a valid California driver's license. In fact, hardly anything had happened to him. I think at the most he might have spent two days in jail, but that was it. That is unbelievable. So how many days after that, Candace, were you with friends? I think I read in a, in a coffee shop or something. Remind me, but and did you decide, okay, look, I, I'm going to do something about this. I want to change the laws. It was actually the day after her funeral when the California Highway Patrol called me and told me that they had found the man who had killed her. And my immediate reaction was concern for his family because I, I didn't know he had been drinking. And I, you know, just thought, well, maybe he had dropped a cigarette or something and, you know, leaned over. And so I said, you know, how is his family? And they said, fine. And I asked them if he had any children. They said, yes, two very close in ages um, to my daughters. And so, um, you know, I just kind of talked about his family and how they were doing. And then we got in the car, and I'd had people there for several days, and we didn't have any food in the house, and so we all agreed to go out to dinner. And so I got in one car, and some other friends got in another, and they went on to the restaurant. And on the way to the restaurant, we passed the site where she was killed, and I saw California Highway Patrol out there marking the site. So I asked um, the driver to pull over, which he did, and I got out of the car, and I said, are you investigating the death of Carrie Leitner? And they said, yes, we are. And I said, well, I'm her mother. And they said, oh, I guess you know someone's been arrested. And I said, yes, I do. And they said, well, I guess you know um, that he had been drinking. Mm. And I didn't know that, but I was afraid if I told them that, they wouldn't tell me anything more. So I said, mm-hmm. yes, I did. And they said, well, I guess you know he was out on bail from another hit-and-run drunk driving crash. And I went, yes, I did. Wow. And they said, well, and I guess you know he's had prior, you know, drunk driving arrests and convictions. And I went, yes, I, I did. And then I said, well, how long will he get in prison at the cops? And I laughed, and he said, prison. He said, lady, you'll be lucky to see any jail time. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that amazing? When we got to the restaurant and I met my friends, I was telling them this story, and I was just, I was so angry. And my sister looked at me, and she said, I know you well, and I know you're going to do something. And I said, you're right. I'm going to start an organization. And my girlfriend, Sam, turned around and said, and you're going to call it Mothers Against drunk drivers, which is what it was in the beginning, and then it changed to drunk driving. And I said, that's right. So it was, um, I think, May 7th when I did, it was the day after the funeral. She was killed on the 3rd, buried on the 6th. It was May 7th. 
and that's when I did. Oh my goodness, that that's an amazing story because that you would would start that early because people, Heidi and I have had uh, experience with people telling people you know you can't do things that early you have to wait mm-hmm. or some people feel like they have to do things really early and and yet they don't give themselves permission to wait so when it comes it just comes doesn't it. Well, you know, it's interesting because in all truthfulness, what we learned from this experience is that I then told people who wanted to get involved with the organization, I would then encourage them to wait a period of time and, and, and do some mourning, so to speak, and excuse me, before they got involved because MAD was all-consuming, and it was also uh, a great way of postponing your grief. And I don't know if you've read my book, Giving Sorrow Words, how to go with grief. Yeah, I know that you said five and a half years you put your grief on hold. Oh, exactly. But but on the other hand, Candace, you had the energy and the anger and the drive to get it up and running and to go give it 500% of your time because your grief was so, I mean, in a sense, your emotions were so raw at that point. Well, it was a good way of dealing with my anger. It was probably not the best way of dealing with my grief. That's a good decision. That's very interesting. And, you know, how long did it take? The, did you go to court when he went to court? Oh, yeah. Yeah, how long, you know, how was that? I went to court yesterday with a, uh, uh, I do a compassionate friends group, and uh, there was a boy who was murdered, and it's been, you know, a year and a half or two years. So they've been living with that court whole thing going on. Yours was pretty uh, closer to the event, right? It was. I I don't remember now exactly when, but it definitely was within, let's see, I think we ended up, um, she was killed May, and I think we were in court by November. Uh, And I say that because I remember at Christmas time they sent me, it was so tacky, the district attorney's office, one of those brown envelopes, and I opened it up, and there were her clothes that oh my she had goodness. been wearing when she was killed, and it said this is evidence that we had on hold. Well, times have changed for your listeners since my case, and that's thanks to MAD. But at the time, we weren't allowed in the courtroom. They didn't want the victims' families, um, the survivors, in the courtroom. And I really had to fight like hell to get in. And I wanted to be there, and I wanted to make a statement, which are now called victim impact statements. And we weren't, at that time, we were discouraged from doing it. It wasn't standard. It is now. And I probably was the first um, to do that, frankly, in the country, possibly. And I did. And my case was also a little unique and somewhat fascinating, but... The wife of the man who killed my daughter never told him that she turned him in. So she gave the CHP permission to get the car. The the public defender defending him was a woman and a mother. And she made a motion to dismiss the evidence because there was no search warrant. And if they had dismissed the evidence, we would have lost. And so the, the defender went into the bathroom. And I went in there with Charlene, the wife of the man who killed my daughter, and we literally pinned her up against the wall. And I said, how can you do this? Are you a mother? And she said, yes, I have a daughter the same age as yours. I said, how can you do this? She said, that's my job. And Charlene said, well, I'm the one who gave the California Highway Patrol permission to take the car. She said, well, we weren't told that. And that's because Charlene had asked them to keep it confidential. Mm-hmm. And she said, give me some time with my husband alone. And she went in and told him. 
and then that came up in court, and so the motion to dismiss was dismissed. But it was made, but then that happened, and the judge and I, well, he said he'd make his decision in 48 hours, got into the elevator together, and if you saw the movie, this scene is so true, and I wasn't allowed to say anything, but I'll tell you, I looked at him like you wouldn't believe, trying to communicate to him to to dismiss the motion and to, to proceed onward to court. And, of course, the next day he came back and had learned, you know, that Charlene had given permission and all of that, so they did dismiss the motion. We never went to trial per se. We never had a jury trial or whatever. Um, he pled, but I did get my day in court, so to speak, um, I, you know, I did get to, to participate and I did get to testify um, against the district attorney's uh, advice. And, you know, I just, the press was on my side, thank God, and so they'd made a big issue out of it, so they capitulated. But. What, uh, you know, uh, it's an amazing story. How did you feel about the wife of the, um, I mean, it sounds pretty courageous the way she handled it. Mm-hmm. You know, I had mixed emotions about her. I mean, we actually continued to communicate for a long time afterwards. I was angry with her because she gave him, let him drive her car, and she knew he had a history of drunk driving. And I considered her a participant, an accessory to the fact. I was grateful to her for turning him in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had mixed emotions about it. Right. Now, if, if someone wants to get a hold of the movie, is that possible? Um, possibly. Uh, it shows on TV an awful lot, but I think okay. you can order it also over the Internet. I have done so, so I think oh, it's very out good. there. Okay, we're gonna, we'll can look into some of that, Heidi, the book and the, the movie. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. I, I wanted to read an email that we had um, from uh, a Carla from Florida. We asked people if they'd like to send in some emails, and hers was, she said, Our dearest friends lost their 24-year-old daughter and her fiancé in an automobile accident 12 years ago because of drunk driving, I was amazed to see how quickly the parents were able to forgive the inebriated man who died in the fiery crash. On the other hand, the parents' older son took much longer to work through his anger at losing his younger sister and soulmate. Is this typical? When brought to our knees, do parents somehow forgiveness in, find forgiveness in their heart while the sibling can harbor rage and anger for a long time? I know you've got a, a, a twin, right? Carrie's twin? Yeah, Carrie's an identical twin. Well, the first thing I want you to know, there is no normal in grieving, so to mm-hmm. speak. So what one may do, someone else may not do. I've, I've dealt with parents who were angry for many years afterwards and siblings who were not. Uh, in Carrie's case, uh, Serena seemed to, I thought, handle it very well, and I became concerned about it. And they were both softball players, and... The first game after they played, they were all doing this, you know, let's win it for Carrie, let's win it for Carrie, and unfortunately they didn't. And I remember Serena came home and came in the door, and she had her her bat with her, baseball bat, and she threw it in the living room screaming and cussing and saying, you know, goddamn, Carrie, why did you die? Why did you die? We do cuss a lot in our family. And, you know, I remember being relieved that I had seen the outburst of anger and uh, and then she told me many years later that some years ago she actually went back to Sacramento and went to the cemetery and went to the grave and sat there and talked to her for a long time and cried and and you know so she she did her own grieving she went to a therapist about a year or so later for 6 months 
And I called the therapist who told me that she was handling it, you know, fine, not to worry about it, basically. And so I didn't. Now, we've had some issues since then I won't go into uh, of her trying to take her sister's place, et cetera, which have created some And, and, and the whole issue of twin, we just had a whole show on twin loss, Candace, and the whole issue of twins and how intense that relationship is is a whole nother part. You know, losing your, your twin is just a kind of like losing a limb to a certain extent. Yeah, Serena might want to take a listen to that show. It was a very enlightening show for me about about what it means to have, for a twin to have a loss. I mean, hmm. I mean, it's obviously everything she already knows, but for right. us, yeah. they aren't twins. It was fascinating to hear that. And I know I read that she had, she was inspired by you to do a school-based Students Against Drunk Driving. She started the organization, SAD, Students Against Drunk Driving, or Drivers, I think it was at the time, and changed to driving. She did along with her friends and kept it going for a while, and then she lost interest, as teenagers do, and decided that's not what she wanted to do. And so we just had chapters pick it up, and, you know, eventually it became, um, I think, Students Against the Destructive decisions um, based out of Boston, but you know, Mad had a lot of sad chapters and whatever. But then she decided to move on with her life, and that was mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Well, Candace, I wanted to do one more uh, email before we go to break, and this is from Ron from Great Falls, Montana, and he says, "My ex-wife was driving drunk when our daughter was killed. It's been four years, and I still can't forgive her. Oh. She served a year in jail and has been out for three years." I hear she's drinking again. Does mm-hmm. Candace have any suggestions? Um, boy, we dealt with that a lot, believe it or not. Uh, mm-hmm. Custodial parents or, or non-custodial parents would get them on the weekends and they would have a drinking problem and, you know, the other parent would try and get the judge to change the custodial situation so they couldn't take them and judges were not very sympathetic. You know, I, I'm going to tell you something. I don't believe in the concept of forgiveness. Now, having said that, doesn't mean that, you know, this person needs to remain angry for the rest of their life because I certainly didn't. But um, I, I do believe in moving on at some point in time with your life. And, and I, you know, the only thing I can tell you, I, and I don't blame you, who, who, the person that emailed, mm-hmm. yeah, for, for feeling the way you do, I, I, I would too. And I'm sure there's some if only going on in there, if only I hadn't let her go, if only I had done this, if only I hadn't done that. I'm sure there's a lot of self-blame and self-guilt. I had that too, by the way, because I should have, if I picked her up and taken her to the carnival, she would be alive today. So I think you have to deal more with your only your, your only syndrome, your what you're going through for yourself, because I think part of your rage is directed at yourself. That's just a guess. I'm not a therapist, mm-hmm. but... Um, and you need to deal with that. And if you believe in the concept of forgiveness, forgive yourself first. Mm-hmm. I think they, if they believe in a, a deity or a deity or a god or a religion or whatever, then that's up to their god or religion to to forgive if that's the belief that they have. I don't think it's my role at all. Mm-hmm. So people really need to take their whole their own path, and if it is a forgiveness path or not or whatever, um, you, you're open to how people do it, right? I am. I'm more into acceptance. It's kind of a old Krishnamurti philosophy, but anyway, I'm more into acceptance, and eventually, and although I did, I was angry for a long time, obviously, and with good reason, you know, eventually I incorporated her death and her life as part of my life, and, um, you know, it sort of became one, so to speak, and it's who I am, and it's what I'm about, and, um, you know, and it's there, and although I, I, I don't get angry anymore at all, although there are times when I still grieve and I, you know, I'm still actively grieve and I, I'm still sad, 
In the book, I talk about the grieving process as the beginning, the middle, and the rest of the And can you life. say the book for, it tells people mm-hmm. the name of your book? Giving Sorrow Words, How to Cope with Grief and Get On with Your Life. I found after I left MAD that I was really grieving hard, and I thought, you know, my God, it's been five and a half years, and I went to a wonderful therapist who was incredibly helpful, and I did realize at the time that I had put the painful part of grieving on hold as much as possible, mainly because it's so painful that nobody wants to do it. And then um, it was interesting because when I would run into people and I was grieving, and it was obvious I was grieving, they'd say, oh, it's been five and a half years, blah, blah, blah. And so people confuse the um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of dying with stages of grieving, and so everybody mm-hmm. thinks you go through this at this time and right. that, and that's not true. So that's why I wrote the book was to talk about what grieving is all about, and it really is the beginning, the middle, and the rest of your life, and it's how you incorporate oh, it. Oh, I like that, the beginning, the middle, the middle and the rest, rest of your life. And I also really like a concept that you've brought up that we have really not discussed, and that is that you can not forgive. You don't have to forgive to move forward. You, you know, you I didn't. To, <laughs> I like that, Candace. That's another, another path we can take. There's people like you. You do not have to forgive necessarily. And you can also let go of some of the anger without forgiving. Well, I was able to do that. I can't speak to everybody else because I know it's kind of a thing that people have. Oh, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. It never was my thing, so it was, you know, it was easier maybe for me to do than someone else. Mm-hmm. I know, think it sets up an unrealistic expectation, frankly, if you feel that you've got to forgive. You, you know, there's enough going on with grief as it is. You know, mm-hmm. so just do what comes naturally, unless it's harmful to someone else or yourself. And uh, we've got another email here. I just it just came up on the net for me. Um, it's uh, uh, Mary, and uh, she doesn't say where she's from. When you send your emails, please uh, try to put in where you're from. She says, my daughter was killed in an automobile accident after her prom two years ago. Mm. There were six teens in the car, and she was the only one who died. Her boyfriend's, her friend's boyfriend was driving drunk. They are all graduating from high school this year, and I can't help but feel angry and bitter. I have to go to graduation as I teach math at the high school. I just don't know if I can stand to see the driver get his diploma. I know his friends said he felt very bad at the time, but his lawyer told him not to contact our family. I wish I was a better person and could be totally forgiving. Can you help me? Sure, don't go see him get his diploma. Absolutely, that's what he's going to say. You know, I'm all for that. Why do do people feel they have to do these things? You know, you're not a bad person because you don't want to see someone who killed your daughter get their diploma. You know, so that's a completely normal reaction. Don't go see it. I wouldn't do it. I agree. I think and I don't feel bad about it. Mary, that's the advice we've got for you. I think we all concur, don't we, Heidi? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to put yourself in those difficult situations mm-hmm. if you don't want to. No. I went to a court yesterday, as I said, with a friend whose uh, son was murdered, and uh, she left the court at certain times because she didn't want to hear the testimony. And, you know, that's great. Mm-hmm. Fine. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. Be exposed to some of this, these no. kinds of things. No, you know, you know, I've got to, I've got to bring something up too about you, Candace. Not only was Carrie impacted by a drunk driver, but all your children have been at one point in their lives. Um, I, I'm blown away by that. Is that is that correct? Well, Travis was run over by an unlicensed driver when he okay. was four years old, not a drunk driver, or at least okay. as far as we know, she wasn't drunk. And he was in a coma, and as you may or may not know, they didn't expect him to live. So, And he suffered some long-term residual mm-hmm. um, damage, brain injury, et cetera, as a result 
of um, his crash. And then Serena and Carrie were involved in a drunk driving collision when they were two. They were in the back of my mother's car, and she was rear-ended by a drunk driver. And at that time, Serena was injured. So not wow. seriously, but she was injured enough to go to the hospital and, and be treated. So, so both the girls have been in Travis by an unlicensed driver. So ask me if I'm nervous about cars. Yes, I am. You know, I have a few little paranoias here when it comes to driving. Right, and, and I like what you, I read something that said that you said, here this guy that killed my daughter is barred from ever owning a handgun, but he uh-huh. can own a car. Oh, I know. Doesn't that just boggle you? I yes, just, it's very yeah. ironic. Uh-huh. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, tell us something. I know my our audience is going to wonder. Tell us about Founding Mad. A quick, quick shot of it. I know people are going to wonder, how the heck did she do it? Exactly. She testified at Congress. I mean, where did you go? How did you do it? Did it just carry you, or did you have to, you know, how did it go? You know, ignorance is bliss, and <laughs> especially when you want to start an organization. And I think the reason it was so successful and I was able to do it is because I didn't know any better. Absolutely did not know any better. People would say, you can't do this, and I'd say, sure I can. Why not? It just, you know, or it'll take 10 years to, to make a difference. No, it won't. Why? You know, I mean, I had no concept. I was incredibly naive. I wasn't a registered voter. I didn't know politics from whatever. And it was just, it was the reaching out. It was like I, the need to to save another life and not let this happen again and save my other children and, um, excuse me, and work through the anger because I, I truly did have a lot of anger. And it, it, it worked. I mean, it was a difficult thing to do. I get calls all the time from people wanting to start organizations. The first thing I say is first look around and see if there isn't something out there that is similar to what you want to do, see if you can't work with them. And if you really decide you can't and want to start something, be prepared to put your life on hold, your family on hold, and starve to death because that's almost what I did. And uh, I've got to say one thing, Candace. I've got to interrupt for a minute. Mm-hmm. It more than worked. By 1999, MAD was the largest victim advocate and anti-drunk driving activist organization in the world. Mm-hmm. Three million members, more than 600 chapters. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> I mean, I, you Unbelievable. Know. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was just, um, it just had a life of its own. It just, after a while, it just took off, and there was no stopping it. And, you know, not that you'd want to, but it was just... Um, and, and no stopping you. No, uh-uh. no, I was mm-hmm. pretty determined. <laughs> Boy, was I. Like they um, said, you were a crusader with the cause. I was. I was, uh-huh. and it was a good cause to have. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me what happened to you. Did you wake up one day and say, I've got to grieve myself? What happened? Um, I know that you've, you're you not involved with MAD now, are you? Well, I'm not involved. I mean, I'm not involved in a, in a significant way, but I talk to them all the time. They refer calls to me. Chuck is a good friend of mine, the CEO. Glenn uh, Birch, the president of MAD, is going to fly in for my daughter's memorial. Okay, we had him on the show. Yeah, he's isn't very nice. he sweet? He's Ironically, nice. his son was killed on May third, um, uh-huh. as my daughter was not the same year, but the same date, which we find very ironic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we remain in close contact or contact. But no, I don't want to be. In, I mean, I, you know, that's going backwards in my life, and I am right. not a professional victim. I don't make a good victim. So now, how did you decide that you wanted to move on? I mean, how did did it, did you wake up one morning or? You know, it had been coming for a long time. It's you know, I just was burned out and I was tired and I wasn't seeing my children and 
Um, we were, you know, getting into a lot of political stuff with the board, and I was getting sick of it, and it wasn't the first time. And I just, you know, thought, I don't want to go through this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to, I have to tell you, you know what my thing was? I want to wake up one day and smell the roses. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, it's an old cliche, but that's exactly how I felt. And I remember the press would always say to me, well, what do you do for yourself? And I'd say, I wash out my nylons. because that was like one thing I could do in my home environment that was so selfish and so personal. And that's how I related to myself. And I thought, you know, this is really enough. I was on the road seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day. I mean, it was really all-consuming. And I suppose that was good because if it hadn't been, mad wouldn't be the success it is today. But, you know, as far as it went for myself and my family, it wasn't the greatest. So Mm -hmm. it was really time again to move on. Now, uh, it's been, uh, how many, 28 years mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. Is there hope for our audience out there for a happier life? You know, you're in that first year and you're saying, I can't live through this. You know, I'm going to tell you a story. I, I worked with a, a foundation, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, the Jenna Druck Foundation. And Ken Druck is a, is a grief facilitator, lost his daughter Jenna some years ago in a horrible freak accident in India and started this foundation for mourning. And if you haven't had him on, you should. Now, what is his name? Mm-mm. Ken Druck, D-R-U-C-K. Uh-huh, and okay. he would he does facilitation, and he was going to be facilitating some of the Columbine parents after the tragedy and some others, and asked me if I would co-facilitate with him, which I have done in the past. And I agreed to do it. Well, this was some years ago, as you know, but... And Ken is very good about still remaining in his grief and, and being able to relate to that with people who are fresh into their grief. I'm I'm not. I've moved so far beyond it. So we both did this for two days, and it was really interesting because I was cracking jokes, and I really was. I was, tell me funny stories about your kids and going right. on and doing whatever. And at the end of the session, he went around the room and asked people what they thought, and they looked at him and they said, you're where we are now, and pointed to me and said, she's where we want to be. She mm-hmm. gives us hope. And yeah. I, I that wasn't I my it. intent. I was right. just being me. So, you know, you can't tell people fresh into grief, time heals all wounds, there is hope, you'll get beyond this, blah, 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 because you're too grief-stricken to understand that. You're in too much pain. It's like 10,000 pounds are sitting on your chest. You know, the only thing I can do is to say look to others who have been there and right. see how they are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful thought uh, for us to um, – let's take one more email and then we're going to go to break. Uh, we've got an email that just came up from Susan. She says, Heidi and Gloria, I saw you were going to have Candace Leitner on your show. I would like to call in, but I'm too upset. My son Ray, age 10, was killed in a hit and run by a hit and run driver a year ago while riding his bike. Mm-hmm. The man who hit him was arrested the next day and claims that he was not even aware that he hit Ray. He had a DUI three years ago, but he says he wasn't drunk. We are going to trial next month, and I wondered if Miss Leitner had any advice. My concern that is that my husband is so angry that it scares me. Sometimes. Working through the adjudication process helps when you see justice, and hopefully there will be justice in this case. And sometimes having your day in court helps. At least I found that to be true of most of the victims that I've worked with, unless, in fact, they don't get justice, and then it's just the opposite. If you're really concerned about your husband, I would recommend that you 
both get into therapy. And I, I've had mothers call me before who thought their husbands were going to kill the driver. And as you know, if you see the movie, I tried to. I actually went to look for my gun um, mm-hmm. to kill the man who um, killed my daughter when I thought he was going to get off. So I, I can understand that kind of rage. I would um, closely monitor him. I would make sure there are no weapons in the home. And then I would, I'm being very practical here because I've seen Mm -hmm. this happen, and then I would talk to him maybe about having some therapeutic help. But I do think sometimes court can be helpful, but just make sure that um, he's aware of how he has to behave and that he will injure the case if he becomes violent or angry in the court process, and he doesn't want to do that. That's great. Well, thanks, uh, Susan, for that email and a wonderful advice for Candace Leitner. And do you want to um, tell our audience what you're doing now and what you've gone on? Well, I was a realtor when Carrie was killed, and after leaving MAD and writing the book and doing consulting, I decided I wanted to go back into real estate, which I did, and I'm also working with the Department of Energy on educating realtors about incorporating energy efficiency into their practice, and I've just developed a course, a designation for realtors um, called the Energy Smart Real Estate Agent that they can take because I think energy is a big deal and a big issue and something we all can do something about um, for ourselves now and for our future, and so hence that's what I'm doing. That's great. Well, it's, it's so wonderful to hear, you know, this this full cycle of journey, mm-hmm. how you have, have gone on to think about and, and do other things, but you're still in the realm of thinking about the world, aren't you? I am. I, you know, once a cause activist, I think always, at least for me, always an activist to some degree. I just, you know, feel there's so many good causes out there I'd like to do something about, and, and I have in, in you know, over the years and will continue to do so until I'm buried. Well, I hope that you'll have a connection with us in the Open to Hope Foundation. Oh, I'd love to. Now, Candace, I wanted to ask you if you've got a piece of advice for our folks out there, newly bereaved, um, what would it be? Mourn. Mm-hmm. Grieve. Do what you need to do. Um, don't worry about whether it's normal or not, as long as you're not hurting yourself or someone else and you can still function barely. Um, don't try to put it off. I know it's painful. Don't worry about crying in front of other people. And if you need help, ask for it. Let people know you need help and let them know what you need. That's great. Well, nice. Thank you so much for being on the show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.